Gresham College presents What I like about this country is that it has a nice level of corruption by Michael Minelli, Mercer School Memorial Professor of Commerce. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I'm pleased to uh, find so many of you so satisfied with our level of corruption that you can spare an afternoon to share experiences. Um, I'm particularly pleased that Alan and Overy dug into their pockets today to fund a lunch, which I hope you take as a bribe to fill out the uh, evaluation form in, a, in an exceedingly positive manner. Uh, a bit of teensy housekeeping. Uh, please, could you turn mobile phones off? Uh, you know, we don't want to spoil the view. And, uh, and also, I'd really like to say a, a special word of welcome. We don't normally do this because we're, we're in Barnard's Inn Hall, but um, we're particularly pleased to have the opportunity to continue this series of lectures in the Docklands, and Alan and Overy's support for this series of lectures um, has been simply superb, and uh, we do hope to continue them to bring a little bit of city intellectual life out here to the wastelands. So. <laughs> so. Anyway... As you know, it, it wouldn't be a commerce lecture without a commercial, so I'm glad to announce that the next commerce lecture at Barnard's Inn Hall is on Monday, the 12th of November at 6 p.m., and it's entitled Stealing the Silver, How We Take from the Dispossessed, the Poor, and Our Own Children. Uh, please do slip any Gresham College person here a tenor if you want a space. And finally, on housekeeping, as an aside to the Securities and Investment Institute, Association of Chartered Certified Accountants and other, other uh, continuing professional development attendees, please be sure to record your CPD uh, points at the end of the lecture or obtain a certificate of attendance from Gresham College. Right. Well, as we say in commerce, uh, to business. Firstly, I'd like to conduct a small poll. Could I please have a show of hands from everyone who hates corruption? <laughs> wow. Get... get Get those arms up there, please. You, you too. You. Right. Everybody's up. Up, 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 up. Up, up. Would everyone who has bribed a government official please drop their hands? Yeah. Would everyone who has sent an unbidden check to the police for their own speeding please, please drop their hands? Would anyone who has never paid cash to avoid VAT please drop their hands? Would anyone who has enjoyed corporate entertainment please drop their hands? Well, that certainly helps me understand this audience. Right. Well, the inspiration for this afternoon's talk comes to us courtesy of a friend, Malcolm Cooper. Malcolm relates the story of being in Washington, D.C. with a Nigerian taxi driver. Malcolm asked the taxi driver how he found the USA compared to Nigeria, and his response was, what I like about this country is it that it has a nice level of corruption. It's a more profound statement than you might think, the statement implies that corruption is universal, but sometimes you can have too much, and perhaps sometimes too little. So while many commerce talks are about the distributions of goods, today I'd like to discuss the distribution of bads. Corruption is big, pervasive, and important. In 2003, the World Bank estimated that $1.5 trillion is spent every year on bribes alone, 5% of the world economy at that time. Of course, the World Bank would know, as we were treated this past year to the controversy over Paul Wolfowitz and payments to his girlfriend. <laughs> France convicted 30 executives of ELF, the oil major, in 2003. Russia's oil industry shenanigans could occupy several lectures. 
Brazil is consumed with Operation Razor, an investigation that has toppled one minister and looms over legislators, governors, and even the president of the Senate. The International Olympics frequently features, uh, especially out here. Uh, for example, Salt Lake City's bid for the 2002 Winter Olympics showed that 20 out of 110 International Olympic Committee members were bribed. 13 lost their posts in the ensuing investigations. The Iraq oil for food investigations indicated significant corporate and government corruption with some estimates between $700 million and $2 billion, of which $230 to $240 million went on bribes to Iraqis. Where did the others go? These investigations indicated that half of the 4,000 or so mostly Western companies involved may have taken or paid kickbacks. Music companies have their payolas, game shows and quizzes, their tampering. It's been a good summer to ponder where corruption might feature in the analysis of incidents such as lead paint in toys from China, animal diseases in Purbright, the state of Zimbabwe, or closer to home, Northern Rock. The Copenhagen Consensus, a massive project to prioritize global improvement, rates gains from reducing corruption in starting a new business alone as more beneficial for the global poor than improving infant and child nutrition or preventing climate change. Bureaucracy helps to create corruption by providing opportunities. Back in the 1990s, the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries, and Food, which incorporated the Intervention Board, this is all now DEFRA's uh, Rural Payments Agency, among other responsibilities, the Intervention Board made subsidy payments to farmers in accord with the European Union's common agricultural policy. The Intervention Board distributed about 700 million per annum in the UK at that time. Estimates of irregularity and fraud in British payments in the early 1990s were around £8 million per annum. I hasten to add that the EU estimated total irregularities across Europe was then about £320 million. To give you an idea of the scale in the UK, special investigations of 200 cases arising in 1991 to 1993 led to the recovery of £4.4 million and 19 successful prosecutions. At this time, a colleague and I, Ian Harris, who's in the room today, uh, were invited to explore the distribution of payments to farmers in the UK under the beef export scheme and the butter and starch subsidy schemes. We were given an interesting objective. Try and see if you, naive outsiders, can find a way to defraud the system. It was a fun challenge, and we probably spent far too much time enjoying our role as agricultural hackers. We visited friends who ran margarine factories and asked where the butter industry was corrupt. We rang farmers in other countries for their views on British beef practices, and we explored the price relationships between starch and commodities. One of the discovery tests we ran showed that the largest importer of British beef was, surprisingly, Mauritius. It's doubly surprising as there is plenty of South African beef to eat, if they eat beef. I've never visited, but those who know this beautiful island will support me when I say that of its one million inhabitants, 500,000 are Hindu and unlikely to eat beef. Another 200,000 practice Islam and would only eat halal meat, which wasn't what was claimed to be exported. So we learned one thing from our statistics. Don't fly to Mauritius. Take a boat. With 300,000 ferocious Christian and Creole carnivores consuming so much meat, <laughs> flying through the haze of barbecue smoke would be far too dangerous for any pilot. 
We have no idea whether the beef was being sold within the EU to other less subsidized places or possibly not even leaving the UK at all. We knew that the subsidies were being claimed, and one thing we know for sure is that all the beef was not going to Mauritius. We ourselves didn't conduct the resulting investigations, but our suspicion was that falsification of export and import certificates was part of the scam. I hasten to point out that in regard to corruption, Mauritius is the fourth best African country out of 20 rated countries, and were it in Europe, would lie between Lithuania and Greece on the corruption ruler. In a like manner, I've pondered the opportunities for corruption from the recent anti-money laundering bureaucracy. I imagine that if I were a criminal, and all that stood between me and depositing or withdrawing lots of my money was convincing a bank teller that my identification was valid, I'd follow a young, underpaid teller to the pub at lunch. There I would explain my predicament, and then I would return to the bank after lunch, slip a dodgy passport across the counter with a thousand pounds in it, have it photocopied at low resolution, and obtain my access. Bureaucratic systems to prevent corruption can have unintended consequences. Naturally, things are very corrupt abroad. According to a control risks and Simmons survey of international business attitudes to corruption, a quarter of UK-based international companies said that they had lost business to corrupt competitors in the last five years. We like to dwell on really bad overseas corruption. Klitgaard relates his experiences with corruption in Equatorial Guinea in the 1980s. The government tries to get you in the funniest ways. For example, there are taxes for biological inspection of gin, chickens, you name it. Allegedly, for testing purposes, they insist on taking two bottles of gin per case. Then they charge us 150 safes, about 50 cents, per chicken for inspection. If we don't pay, they'll hassle us. The chickens we import are frozen. Unless we pay them a bribe, they ask us to unfreeze them for testing. Then say they can't get to it and tell us to freeze them back up again. And so on, till you pay. Yeah, the UK, of course, is not a corrupt country. In fact, the exception that proves the rule is Al-Yamama. Al-Yamama is an ongoing arms sale dating back to the 1980s. Al-Yamama covers a variety of equipment, including tornado fighter aircraft and now Eurofighters. There have been numerous allegations that the Al-Yamama contracts were won as a result of bribes to members of the Saudi royal family and government officials. The UK's National Audit Office investigated the contracts in the 1990s but never released its conclusions, the, the only NAO report ever known to be withheld. The Serious Fraud Office also dropped an investigation on the 14th of December last year when the Attorney General, Lord Goldsmith, announced to the House of Lords, the Director of the Serious Fraud Office has decided to discontinue the investigation into the affairs of BA Systems PLC as far as they relate to the Al-Yamama defense contract. This decision has been taken following representations that have been made both to the Attorney General and the director concerning the need to safeguard national and international security. It has been necessary to balance the need to maintain the rule of law against the wider public interest. No weight has been given to commercial interests or to the national economic interest. In June 2007, BAE announced that the United States Department of Justice launched an investigation into Al-Yamama and the possible funneling of money to a Saudi prince using a U.S. bank. So one of the UK's 30 largest companies is under prominent investigation for corruption. And just to clear the air about the lack of corruption in the UK, I should mention the Cash for Honours rumours. Uh, and it's nice to see the uh, UK repeating the US quiz show scandals of the 1950s. 
Ernie Marr's 1959 song is rather appropriate even today, just substitute Parliament for Congress. I won't try and sing, but I'll, I'll try and mime. Yes, Congress discovered a long time ago the prophets concealed in a questioning show, and Congressman Walter can tell you the tale about how quizzers get votes and contestants get jail. <coughs> oh, I might as well just rattle off a few other scandals while we're here, <laughs> such as Lloyd's in the 1980s and early 1990s, the Maxwell Pension Funds, Banco Ambrosiano, Endowment Mortgages, Split Capital Trust, BCCI, or that this year the FSA estimated nearly 25% of takeover announcements show suspicious price movements beforehand indicating insider trading, or... <coughs> informed price movements in the jargon. <laughs> Police investigations into UK bribery run at only around 150 a year. Few cases result in convictions, though we do see some high-profile ones, such as a Mars UK middle manager getting gifts and cash in return for approving false and inflated invoices. But these isolated cases do not reveal scale of corruption. For example, a 2006 survey of corruption within the UK construction industry by the Chartered Institute of Building, indicated that 51% of 335 UK construction professionals felt that corruption is commonplace within the industry, and 41% of the respondents said they had been offered a bribe. In the UK property sector, agents operate on an almost standard 7% kickback for referring small and mid-range clients to construction firms and builders. The estimated level of UK construction is approximately £3 billion a year. When I confronted one partner in a major firm with a case of staff corruption, he first denied it happened, then blustered that it was unrealistic to pay his staff enough to act professionally. When he turned a blind eye, his staff got plenty from kickbacks. Just think what 7% on a typical £2 million property project is worth. And he didn't have to pay them so much. And everyone else is kicking back, aren't they? We could talk about police corruption or judicial corruption or medical research scandals and so on. Gosh. Isn't mankind inventive? American politicians struggle to hire domestic help. It seems that everyone who can bear working for them is an illegal immigrant. <laughs> Back in 1987, Italy's GDP overtook Britain's, il sorpasso, when Italy's statisticians decided that the black economy was too large to leave out of the official figures. In fact, if you consider black economies to be corrupt, then the best guess is that 15 to 40 percent of the world economy is corrupt. There are large market forces at work in black economies for general smuggling, especially across war zones or tense areas, <clears throat> illegal drugs, prostitution, firearms, false documents, copyrighted media, alcohol and tobacco smuggling, as well as speakeasies and other licensed premises corruption. Copyrighted media and counterfeiting alone is enormous. It's estimated at $500 billion annually, or 8 to 9% of world trade, if you believe the aggrieved businesses. Having recently been in China, I loved the local honesty you can see in this slide. In central China, I was told, very good copy, and not fake, quality copy. <laughs> and even original copy. Some of my friends have a little game about fakes, giving them authentic names. North Fake for North Face. <coughs> Reboff for Reebok. Nike Likey. <laughs> or Mustake for Musto. And just when you start to get jaded, it turns out that these Columbia trousers are authentic. But it's not all one-way business. 
We have citizens with their hands in the till. According to research published in the July 2004 Economic Journal, the black economy in the UK, just among self-employed people, amounts to 10.6% of GDP, that is over 100 billion pounds. UK tax fraud is estimated at tens of billions, VAT fraud and carousels at anywhere from 2 billion to 30 billion, and benefit fraud is just a snip, 700 million pounds per annum. Now, no contemporary talk about corruption could ignore Transparency International. Transparency International is a high-profile global network dedicated to fighting corruption. It was founded in 1993 by Peter Eigen. As ever, it is useful to start with a definition. For openers, we can use the definition they supply. Corruption is the misuse of entrusted power for private gain. Transparency International differentiates between according to rule corruption and against the rule corruption. Facilitation payments where a bribe is paid to receive preferential treatment for something that the bribe receiver is required to do by law are according to rule corruption. A bribe paid to obtain services the bribe receiver is prohibited from providing is against the rule corruption. Further, we have a distinction between the demand side, the bribe takers, and the supply side, the bribe payers. Transparency International has an annual publication that focuses on the demand side, that's called the Corruption Perceptions Index, and another on the supply side, the Bribe Payers Index. Since first publication in 1995, the Corruption Perception Index has been very influential. But how does corruption work? I'm going to rattle off a few examples to get your minds going. Shantytown dwellers without property rights pay off officials so their houses aren't bulldozed away. Researchers fake results to gain academic kudos and further research grants. Government regulators turn a conveniently blind eye, leading to 950 people injured and 22 killed in a fireworks factory explosion in the Netherlands in 2000. Pharmaceutical companies offer free training or other benefits to doctors who prescribe their drugs. Independent financial advisors get money or holidays or gifts for recommending that clients move to a new pension fund or insurance product or investment scheme. A health and safety inspector gets special favors for not closing down a filthy restaurant or special favors for closing down a competitor. Lawyers fabricate interests in order to launch class action suits. Foreign companies put relations of government ministers on their boards for you-know-what. A marine safety inspector gets special favors from threatening to delist a safe vessel. An equestrian center owner gets annoyed when a prospective employee she wanted to employ has no interest in getting paid in cash. And just about anything to do with organized crime. Now, there are taxonomies of corruption I won't bore you with, but uh, lots of distinctions between bribery, graft, extortion, patronage, nepotism, cronyism, embezzlement, and kickbacks. To be honest, as opposed to how we usually are, uh, corruption can be tough to separate from its time or locale. John Mortlock established the first bank in Cambridge in 1780. In 1783, he became an alderman and changed the rules so that he held the post of mayor of Cambridge 13 times until his death. Along with being receiver of the land tax for Cambridgeshire and an MP, his offices allowed him to sell off city property at knockdown prices, divert taxes, and appropriate city funds. After his death, his sons continued the traditions. 
Mortlocks were mayors of Cambridge for an unbroken streak of 51 years. This expert on the subject provided one of the quickest ways to dismiss allegations of corruption. What you call corruption, I call influence. Another problem separating corruption from normal commerce is the concept that people need to be paid. And as the pay is insufficient, bribes are needed. In German, the word for bribe is Schmiergeld. The word means grease money. The term refers to the need for the old post coaches, pictured here, and more often their occupants, to pay to have their wheels greased when they stopped for a service. Of course, without grease, the wheels cease rolling. Today's grease money raises the income of an impoverished civil servant in return for speeding up the wheels of bureaucracy. Of course, the solution is rather more obvious, pay people enough not to need bribes. In cases like Mortlock in the 18th century or the third world today, people want to know what causes corruption in some places and not others. Well, it's a slightly nonsensical question. Corruption is everywhere, just varying in degrees of severity. If an opportunity exists, most of the time, some people will take it. The key elements in people's decisions to commit a corrupt act are the opportunity on offer, the chance of suffering retribution, and their own moral code. People talk about causes of corruption, but they're really talking about environmentally favorable conditions, such as a low level of societal trust, a weak judiciary, weak rule of law, poor accountability, overregulation, excessive bureaucracy, barriers to entry, underpaid civil servants, exclusive guilds, or elitist social structures. Yet two things stand out. First, the strength of property rights seems to be a clear theme. Pipes contrasts the different fortunes of the UK and Russia, basing his analysis on different concepts of property. In their highly influential work, The Rise of the Western World, North and Thomas note that economic growth will occur if property rights make it worthwhile to undertake socially productive activity. activity. Corruption undermines property rights and thus impedes economic growth. Secondly, equality matters. Many analysts note that countries with high equality, such as the Nordic countries, have very low rates of corruption. They also have higher average living standards. Inequality leads to loss of trust, which leads to corruption. Uslaner points out that corruption, of course, depends on trust or honor among thieves. As it takes two to tango, it takes at least two to bribe. Corrupt officials need to be sure that their partners will deliver on their promises. Lambsdorff argues, if corrupt deals cannot be enforced, this can act as a deterrent to corruption itself. Corruption thrives upon trust, but it cannot be based upon the notion of widespread goodwill and common interests in a society underlying generalized trust. In short, I can trust you to cheat leads to corruption. This same reasoning seems to underlie similar attitudes until recently regarding gambling contracts in the UK. Until recently, gambling contracts were unenforceable. This led to tremendous amounts of trust at least about payment in the UK gambling world. How much does corruption hurt? Is there a good way to estimate the costs of corruption? Transparency International says the short answer is no. There is no way to measure the costs, though Transparency International does categorize the costs as political, economic, social, and environmental. 
Despite fancy statistics, supply and demand analysis, and tricky surveys, bribes are not recorded. False investment is impossible to separate from a mistake. Non-monetary favors are hard to value. Investment loss to perceptions of corruption is impossible to estimate. And contaminated land isn't registered. If a corrupt official turned a blind eye to bad practices at the Bhopal disaster, or inspectors in Japan ignored earthquake vulnerable buildings, are the billions of losses attributable to these disasters corruption? Transparency International points out that the social costs of corruption are even less quantifiable. No one knows how much the loss of an energetic entrepreneur or an acclaimed scientist costs a country. Moreover, any estimated social costs in dollars would be inadequate to the task of measuring the human tragedy behind resignation, illiteracy, or inadequate medical care. A general skepticism vis-a-vis any attempt at quantifying the costs of corruption is warranted. Any complex analysis trying to take into account pollution, land values, resettlements, medical costs, shortened lifespans, contaminated land, increased debt, foregone foreign direct investment, and many other factors can only help scale or compare. It will never be precise. But what is clear is that the scale of corruption and the knock-on effects globally are large. Markets are a game of cooperation. Corruption weakens the game. Corruption weakens in subtle ways, such as if kickbacks are easier to obtain on capital investments and input purchases than on labor, rulers will favor capital-intensive projects irrespective of their economic justification. White elephants and poor resource allocation decisions result. Even worse, contradictory evidence seems to pop up from time to time. Rock and Bonnet found that corruption slows growth and or reduces investment in most developing countries, particularly small developing countries, but increases growth in the large East Asian newly industrializing economies. The latter finding provides solid empirical support to a country case literature that explains the East Asian paradox, the combination of high corruption and high growth in terms of stable and mutually beneficial exchanges of government promotional privileges for bribes and kickbacks. So if we can't reliably measure it, have some doubts and can't value it, is corruption an economic problem? Well, yes, in several ways. And in a commerce lecture, we use this excuse to visit volatility and agency theory. Krastev refers to a corruption paradox contrasting pre- and post-communist societies in Eastern Europe. I must confess that in the early 1990s, I found that Eastern Europe rapidly grasped corruption on a large scale, as I witnessed some computer companies paying kickbacks to financial institution officials. I must also confess that the Eastern Europeans seem to have willing Western tutors. Krastev says that opinion polls today show that more than 70% of Bulgarians, Poles, and Russians think there is more corruption today than in the days of communism. And the major reason why the majority of Bulgarians, Poles, and Russians perceive post-communism as more corrupt than communism is that the more inclusive form of corruption they endured was blat. Blat was replaced by an exclusive form of corruption, bribery. In its essence, the replacement of blat 
by bribery marked the devaluation of what they considered to be socialist, uh, sorry, what they considered to be communist social capital. And as a result, corruption has become the major instru instrument for producing social inequality in the post-communist societies. The competitive nature of bribery forces differentiation, whereas BLAT was a flat rate. Others show that, other studies show that people react more to varying levels of corruption than they do to stable levels. I don't mind paying, but I do mind finding out that you got the same service for much less. As in so many other areas of economics, relative social gains and losses matter more to us than absolute amounts. We hate two things, lack of choice and the capricious, but we will silently endure the fixed cost. This leads me to question the definition of corruption we encountered earlier, the misuse of entrusted power for private gain. I sometimes think what we erroneously consider to be corrupt are situations where we are unable to ascertain the rules of the game. We are left open-mouthed and aggrieved when someone finds a novel way to win. So if corruption is rotten and putrid, perhaps these rule-bending should be called old factions, a bit whiffy, but not a clear abuse of entrusted power. It would be a tough competition to be the most corrupt person in history, but the most olfactory might be Alexander the Great when he cut the Gordian knot. Alexander didn't bribe anyone to win, we think, but he did come up with a solution that was outside the rules. Partnoy relates a more recent tale about Frank Quattrone, a legally challenged $200 million a year investment banker at the heart of hyping tech stocks. Partnoy says, when Peter Jackson, the CEO of Intraware, complained that soliciting investors during his company's IPO was going to make him feel like a mule, CS First Boston delivered a live mule to Intraware's lobby the next morning, <laughs> complete with a sign urging the company to hire CS First Boston. CS First Boston won the business. Competitors smelt an old faction. We value stable rule systems, even if they're corrupt. We don't like volatility. We value stable prices, even bribes, not volatile ones. Volatility avoidance may, for us, outweigh the losses from corruption in some cases. Well, we know it's a big, bad world, so let's stop for a coffee and a small bite to eat. In Spanish, a bribe is la mordida, the bite. So the key question, after your coffee and your small bite, do you leave a tip? In agency theory, tipping can be looked at as a principal-agent problem. Principal-agent problems are situations where, which arise between employers and employees, politicians and civil servants, stockholders and their executives, and donors with charities. The problem is how to motivate one party, the agent, to act on behalf of another, the principal. The issues are typically clarity about what the principal wants, the cost to the agent of providing what the principal wants, and the cost of evaluating the elements of performance. In economic jar jargon, the conditions are that the principal-agent relationship exists in an environment of information asymmetry, uncertainty, and risk. The information asymmetry leads to further problems of moral hazard. For example, agents take risks without bearing the consequences and adverse selection, being unable to find the good managers because the principal is unable to determine whether their representations are true 
Paradoxically, a really smart person is someone who is intellectually below average for a job, but smart enough to get paid above average. Now that is adverse selection. <laughs> the key approach to solving principal agent problems is aligning risk and reward, risk-reward management. So let's go back to leaving a tip. The restaurant owner is the principal. The principal wants staff or agents to provide good service. The principal's goals are slightly unclear because they consist of making a profit on the customers, happy customers, portion control, moving tables through rapidly. All these things need balancing. The differential cost to the agent, the employee, can be high. There's a big difference in effort between moving a few plates from the kitchen to the tables and providing high-quality, attentive service. There is moral hazard. The waiters and waitresses don't bear the cost of losing the customers. There is adverse selection. Most principals don't know if the waiter or waitress is any good till they try them. And finally, the cost of evaluating the elements of agent performance are high. Does the principal want to hold a job appraisal after every table has paid its bill? The principal often decides that performance evaluation is best left to customers to provide in the form of a bonus, a tip. Tips also help to reduce the moral hazard of losing customers to bad service and reduce the risk of adverse selection because, with bonuses available, the principal doesn't feel obliged to pay agents so much. We, the customers, might disagree. Just pay your staff properly to do good work. Some cultures feel strongly that tipping is immoral. In China, outside of the tourist areas, tipping is rude and has whiffs of corruption and special favor. Inside tourist areas, tipping has led to newspaper and online discussions of a move to a more dissolute society due to Western influences. Now the agents can start to play on information asymmetry. I am so sorry the kitchen messed up your order, but I, I pulled a special favor with the chef and I've sorted it out now. This leads to customers saying things like, oh, leave the hardworking dear a big tip for all her efforts, that we're not coming back to this disorganized place again, are we? The information asymmetry is twofold. The principal never hears these statements, and the customers have no way of finding out the entire problem was fabricated to enlarge the tip. Not all restaurants get this bad, but tipping fulfills Transparency International's definition of corruption if the waiter or waitress provides a differential service in aid of a tip, the misuse of entrusted power for private gain. If the customer considers anything other than always giving a tip of standard size or percentage, no matter what the circumstances, or no tip ever, then the customer is gauging how to entice the misuse of the entrusted power of the waiter or waitress for private gain in the form of a better-than-average meal or better-than-average service. Otherwise, why tip? Of course, this implicit corruption would be worse if waiters and waitresses weren't so good about declaring their tips to the tax folk. <laughs> And restaurant owners so good about declaring their shares, too. So next time you're in a restaurant, I know you won't encourage corruption. But everyone else is tipping, aren't they? Another good example is corporate entertainment. I regularly attend and host corporate entertainment events. Is this corruption? There's no direct connection between decisions made with entertainment relationships. But both sides do this in order to get to know each other, to establish favorable conditions for decisions, and to build trust. To tease you some more on agency issues, imagine someone who applies for a two-day-a-week job but doesn't need the money and has time to spare. This person informally indicates that he or she intends to put in more days than planned, 
say, four days a week, and is selected because of this, is the person corrupt and stealing a job from people who told the truth that they would need more money to work two more days? There are many areas where risks and rewards between principals and agents are misaligned. A telling example of the importance of the principal-agent problem is stock options. While it is true that less buoyant markets and new requirements to expense options have lessened their attractiveness, it is arguable that options should ever be used for management remuneration. Options increase in value as share price volatility increases, thus rewarding managers who create volatility or instability in their company's shares. Empirical studies show that shareholders value companies with lower volatility, so options perversely give managers incentives to decrease shareholder value. Options ab initio divide the interests of managers from those of shareholders. Genuine equity in restricted stock and longer-term incentives based on competitive benchmarks are possibly the way to go. But nonetheless, so long as options are an option, quick fixers will opt for these non-optimal methods. I got that out, didn't I? Yet options have clearly caused significant problems in the governance of our major corporation. So why do remuneration committees recommend options if they're such a bad idea for shareholders? Well, there are a lot of conflicts of interest. The remuneration committees are typically appointed and remunerated by managers, not shareholders. The committee members wouldn't mind seeing some of these highly leveraged options themselves one day. And anyway, if the options pay out, the shareholders will have done well, won't they? Frank Portnoy, in his wonderful book, Infectious Greed, explores the many ways in which, in his opinion, the financial markets are corrupt. He depressingly runs through numerous scandals of the 1990s and early 2000s, including the dot-com ramping, accounting scandals, raging agency conflicts of interest, mergers and acquisitions inflation, stock options shenanigans, and many, many more. Partnoy's title comes from the testimony to the U.S. Congress by the former chairman of the U.S. Federal Reserve Board, Alan Greenspan. It's worth quoting at length. An infectious greed seemed to grip much of our business community. Our historical guardians of financial, in, uh, financial information were overwhelmed. Too many corporate executives sought ways to harvest some of those stock market gains. As a result, the highly desirable spread of shareholding and options among business managers perversely created the incentives to artificially inflate reported earnings in order to keep stock prices high and rising. This outcome suggests that the options were poorly structured and consequently they failed to properly align the long-term interests of shareholders and managers, the paradigm so essential for effective corporate governance. The incentives they created overcame the good judgment of too many corporate managers. It is not that humans have become any more greedy than in generations past. It is that the avenues to express greed had grown so enormously. He said that back in July 2002. And it's hardly ceased. At a dinner with Mr. Greenspan's predecessor, Paul Volcker, earlier this year, Mr. Volcker highlighted inequality as an important source of greed and corruption. With corporate U.S. and U.K. executive remuneration sometimes hitting $300,000 per day, he questioned how executives can ever work. They have a full-time job just spending their money. <laughs> Conflicts of interest are rife in finance, auditor and consultant, rating agency and rating consultant, expert and witness, industry insider and regulator. 
The typical response to conflicts of interest are elimination, disclosure, recusal, and third-party audit. Sometimes one can just eliminate conflicts by removing a key party. Sometimes disclosure works. For example, the changing requirements around 1990 to declare fees paid to auditing firms and identify audit fees separately from consultancy fees. Sometimes recusal works, removing oneself from decisions related to specific interests. And finally, third-party audit, or just the threat of possible audit, sometimes helps to promote transparency. Supposedly, the key tool in the anti-corruption toolbox is transparency. But is transparency an unreservedly good thing? In the UK, Royal Navy sailors have been very transparent about a recent incident, selling their stories to the press with the temporary support of the MOD. Uh, this openness is in contrast to most other incidents, but has led to objections partially on the grounds that it was an abusive position. The government has very transparent inflation targets and, and statistics, if you can be bothered to understand them. But the government changes the targets and statistics rather often, and almost always in ways that mean a naive, direct comparison of present with past flatters the present. Is this the misuse of power for the gain of votes? The government procurement process is open and transparent, but it is frightfully difficult for foreign firms or small and medium-sized enterprises to win. The government uses framework agreements. Uh, for those of you not in the know, this is go through a bidding process to win something, the full nature of which cannot be revealed. The only large, that only large UK firms can be bothered to track and submit these is not surprising. There are government gateways, catalogs, and approved supplier lists that seem both daunting and suspicious to smaller or foreign firms, as well as providing opportunities for graft. The irony, of course, is that most government procurement processes are specifically in place to prevent corruption. The result, an oligopoly of government suppliers, while observers lament that the government is not using transparently better and more innovative solutions available from industry, or small and medium-sized enterprises. I've always liked the idea of an ethical test that you should, be, you should be able to tell your grandmother what you're up to. If you can, then things are probably morally fine. Of course, I wonder why you can't tell your mother, and wonder even more what you're supposed to do if your grandmother is a convicted criminal. In a similar vein, and frustrated that a gift culture had become a corrupt culture, the president of Nigeria, Olusogun Obasanjo, pointed out that traditionally in Nigeria, a gift is made in the open for all to see, never in secret. Where a gift is excessive, it becomes an embarrassment and is returned. In her wreath lectures in 2002, though, Honora O'Neill seriously questioned the limits of transparency. Transparency and openness may not be the unconditional goods that they are fashionably supposed to be. By the same token, secrecy and lack of transparency may not be the enemies of trust. She pointed out that if we want to restore trust, then we need to reduce deception and lies rather than focus on secrecy. Some types of secrecy support deception, others do not. Transparency may destroy secrecy, yet at the same time not constrain the deception and deliberate misinformation that undermines relations of trust. If transparency is not enough to reduce corruption, what else might help? A number of observers focus on reducing bureaucracy. Others stress that just reducing the state percentage of GDP 
or employment by the state will reduce corruption. The focus on the state ignores evidence that endemic corruption seems to pervade societies. Perhaps removing clear routes to corrupt positions might help. Randomness might feature. William F. Buckley Jr. once said, I would rather be governed by the first 2,000 names in the Boston telephone directory than by the 2,000 members of the Harvard faculty. <laughs> Given the correlation between inequality and corruption, some reformers promote anti-discrimination and women's rights as routes to lessen corruption. Others point out that democratic voice and accountability should work. One of the more creative solutions is One World Manga, a World Bank-sponsored project to help people learn about global issues such as poverty, <laughs> HIV, global warming, child soldiers, girls' education, and corruption through manga comic strips. Humor and ridicule are, at least, annoying weapons against corruption, particularly in hypocritical situations such as not realizing gifts were illegal or that people might find your junket to a Caribbean crime, uh, climb, sorry, somewhat dodgy. I've always had an intelligence versus integrity balance test. In a dodgy or seemingly hypocritical situation, such as not being aware you took a bribe, you can either be very intelligent in the way you wriggle and thus demonstrate a complete lack of integrity, or I shall assume you have high integrity, though innocently strayed, but clearly lack intelligence. And I know which is worse. To quote Graham Greene, our worst enemies here are not the ignorant and the simple, however cruel. Our worst enemies are the intelligent and corrupt. There is no magic bullet. Roy Zackerman, Rose Ackerman, uh, an expert on corruption, Riley submits, the rich variety of experience is both encouraging and humbling. Existing research suggests that a number of factors must come together before government reform can succeed. Transparency International agrees. It believes that corruption cannot be rooted out in one big sweep. Rather, fighting it is a step-by-step, project-by-project process. Reputedly, though I can't find a source, the US Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis said, sunshine is the best disinfectant. I would add that competition is an equally good disinfectant. Corrupt societies tend to be societies where competition is thwarted. Competitors tend to have a motivation to reveal back practices, though, on the other's part, of course, but it actually forms a check and a balance. Competition means that people have choice, and competition in the long run combines advancement with lower volatility. I've heard harrowing tales of taxis in Freetown, Sierra Leone, where the corruption is so bad that there are bribes at every block. But the people can't take advantage of the implicit competition between countries to escape their predicament. Malcolm's Nigerian taxi driver was at least able to get to Washington, D.C. It is hard for us in a developed country to understand the despair of developing world corruption where there is no escape, no way out, and little prospect of sunshine or competition improving things. At this point, um, I'd like to paraphrase Gordon Gecko's Greed is Good speech. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that corruption, for lack of a better word, is good. Corruption is right. Corruption works. Corruption clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Corruption in all of its forms, corruption for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. I would actually replace corruption with competition, and the speech would read exceedingly well. But strangely, Gecko, even paraphrased, has a point. 
If we treat corruption as solely an economic and not a moral problem, could we accept efficient corruption? If the peccadilloes in all factions incentivize the supply of people who can wrinkle connections out of the system and meet the demands of society for improvement, is that a benefit? If the little missteps give opportunities for people to gain privately from a little misuse of entrusted power, but lead to aligning interests in society, then does greasing the wheels help us move forward? Do we really want to remove all motivation for the movers, shakers, and fixers? I think you have to ask yourself, would you like to live in a totally incorrupt society? Think about it. There is no such thing as a perfect society. There is no such thing as a stable environment. We may strive towards heaven here on earth, but this striving has led to increasingly intertwined and complex societal systems. Our systems need to evolve, but we don't know where to change them. If the systems were squeaky clean, they might seize up completely, unable to evolve or be creative when faced with novel problems. Peccadilloes that pay do motivate some to alter or bend or change the system. These people are rational agents helping to break down information asymmetries and getting other people to reveal preferences that lead to resource reallocation, albeit not optimal because of the skews to decision-making within a corrupt environment. Perhaps there is a gray area between corruption and squeaky clean sterility. Economists, central bankers, and we the public hated hyperinflation. Our current UK inflation target is 2% based on the consumer price index, not zero. Less remarked on, upon by many is that economists and central bankers are terrified of zero inflation, which would mean that we were only a knife edge away from a deflationary spiral no one knows how to correct. Perhaps our corruption targets should be set similarly, very, very low, but not zero. I am deliciously troubled by a law firm advertising, if it's legal, we'll do it. I hasten to add that's not our hosts. <laughs> if it's legal, we'll do it, implying that the ethical framework is identical to the legal system. Perso and Plander disagree. The nub of it is that much of finance is about promises whose fulfillment takes place over time. Those promises need to be sustained by trust, which cannot exist without an ethical framework. I agree with their emphasis on ethical frameworks over, though not instead of, legal or regulatory actions. In conclusion, on the one backhand, I'd like you to consider, theoretically, that some corruption will always exist, and olfaction, however vile, may serve a purpose. On the other backhand, I'd like you to join me in zero-tolerance revulsion in hope of a better future. Corruption give us, gives us a clear scent of where evil lies. Fraud is good only if it helps us to figure out what needs fixing. I am not tolerant of corruption, far from it, but I do recognize that we learn from it. Hypercorruption lies on a slipperier slope than hyperinflation. Jefferson said, the time to guard against corruption and tyranny is before they shall have gotten hold of us. It is better to keep the wolf out of the fold than to trust to drawing his teeth and talons after he shall have entered. And please, don't start tipping or everyone else will do it. Thank you.
Well, good afternoon, folks. Um, we have about five minutes for comments and questions. Um, and I'm probably, as you know, I'm ever more interested in comments than questions. So um, Jeff has a microphone. And uh, we'll start with Jim, if we may. I certainly share your uh, general skepticism uh, regarding measuring the costs of corruption and uh, uh, bribery. And there is no magic bullet. Uh, but I'm prompted a little bit by the concept of uh, situational ethics and morality, that, that you have to judge in terms of gross consequence. And I'm thinking of certain countries in the third world, the, uh, the uh, developing world, where entire generations are deprived of education, of a building, of teachers, of any opportunity to, to take advantage of globalization by virtue of the massive level of uh, consequential harm done by corruption in these countries. What do you have an opinion about that? It's just an input. It's just so gross. I think that some sort of criterion like that about consequential effect has to be uh, introduced at some point. Jim, I, I share your revulsion immensely. And I, I know there are many other people in the audience today who've traveled much more in developing countries than I have or probably ever will. Um, and I can get myself you know, quite, quite upset about it. I think uh, there is an interesting point that I've seen emerging in a number of areas where people are looking at sort of global cost-benefit analysis. And one of them is beginning to realize that corruption may just not be analyzable as a separate item. In other words, it should be taken into account in almost every decision. So perhaps the way to bind this in is when you're looking at school children really being denied, actually look at the corruption that's related to that. When you're looking at people who are deprived of safe water supplies, look at the corruption related to that. Um, and I think that there's been some tremendous efforts in that area. I think as well, um, it's, it's no surprise that people have been and are questioning, I think, even more the role of uh, overseas aid, for instance. And in the course of that, they're beginning to realize that overseas aid, aid itself is a, is a source of corruption and beginning to at least turn their minds to whether or not they're pouring sort of you know, fat on the fire. So I have no magic bullet. I'm as upset as you are. I don't want to shirk from the, the, the idea of trying to estimate these, but I think the whole point is you have to take it with a big grain of salt, and you, you accept that. Could I just make a comment and then throw, throw a question to you? Uh, Warren Buffet has always objected vehemently against stock options because they dilute shareholder equity. Uh, and I think that's as good a reason as any for not having them. Uh, what it does on the stock exchange with executives fiddling the quarter's results, I accept your point. What I really wanted to make was, I've always equated corruption with incompetence. But which came first, incompetence or corruption? I'm not 100% sure I would, um, I would equate corruption with incompetence. I mean, some of the things I've seen are, you know, stunningly intellectually wonderful uh, when, when, when you look at them. Um, I mean, I, 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 was, I was very impressed. I, I, would, I, would, uh, I would note, though, that in the, in the rush to be greedy, people do tend to increase their level of incompetence, and uh, it's, it's how most of them got, get caught. No, I, I don't think it's about incompetence. I think, in fact, the, the more inventive minds are working on ways to get around the system. It's, uh, to me, it's sort of one of the particularly interesting reasons why anti-corruption measures are often frequently quite naive. 
Um, it's almost as if the people doing it are different than the hackers. Um, and you see this in the computer industry when they hire people to hack supposedly foolproof systems, the hackers who have the mentality of how do I look at a system and find ways around it and through it? How do I, I get at it? And they crack these things in hours or days that have been built for years, whereas the sort of solid, straight, sensible sort of chap or woman is, is unable to think creatively that way. They, they take systems as given. So I'm, I'm not sure I'd say it was incompetence. I'd, I'd say there's a heck of a lot of intelligence devoted to, to cracking systems. Yeah, so. If we really think about it, Jesus Christ promised us a higher place in heaven if we will do better. Uh, would it be possible to split um, corruption into, define it into two different levels rather than having everything under one banner <coughs> where there's good corruption and bad corruption? Sorry, um, having good corrup corruption that works well and corruption that doesn't work well. Oh, that's, that's a great question. It's almost as if Transparency International ought to bring out a new index. They sort of, you know, the good corruption guide, you know, Michelin, three stars. When people do corrupt things, they say, well, everybody does it. But, you know, if you answer, well, some people do it for a good Well, I think the gentleman here's question would be great as well. We could, we could sort of say whether they were incompetent at doing it or, or highly intelligent. This is, uh, this is definitely something to savor. I, I'm looking forward to building that, uh, that model. I, I think in some ways we, we, we're struggling with it. Um, the, you know, uh, having prepared for this lecture, I was, I was struck at an area of commerce that is clearly in its infancy. If, you know, those numbers I'm throwing around, if you treat them as economic numbers, you, you might as well you know, throw out every brokerage guide you've ever been reading because it's pointing out that large elements of the economy are missing, completely and totally missing. Um, and I, I've begun to see it, you know, in any field you start with taxonomy and corruption is rife with uh, taxonomy as a field of study, but not a lot in terms of measurement or quality or intelligence or the application of the system. So that could well be a, a very interesting area for further research. And a, a last comment here, if I may, Robert. Uh, just one comment. Uh, we're talking about a nice level of corruption, presumably affecting this country. Uh, after a lot of experience of many countries, including Nigeria and Russia, with the, who have been my main trading partners over the years, I find they don't expect us to corrupt them, generally, apart from the official that won't let you get your bags out unless you pay. A bit. But I find that normally they corrupt each other, they corrupt themselves, and they keep it in the family. Um, and for uh, but they will tell you, if you want my business, you must work with a local, a local broker, a local commission agent, and they will handle any of the bribery that's necessary. We never get to touch it. Our hands remain clean, whatever we may know of what is going on. <laughs> yeah. That's great. The, the, the hidden side of, uh, of, of hidden corruption. I, I like that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, in true Gresham style, uh, firstly, may I say thank you. I really appreciate everybody coming today. But as you know, we start on time and we end on time. Um, I'd like to thank you for letting me share some thoughts with you. Um, I believe our guests are letting us stay a little bit afterwards. And I'll certainly be around for another 20 or 30 minutes if people want to chat. But I also am aware that people have places to be and, uh, and work to do. 
So thanks very much to coming to this uh, lecture in the Docklands. And could we also have a round of applause for our hosts, Alan and Overy? Thank you. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.